0: So on both campuses, we just witnessed uh, just a video of our student camp this week, uh, and so they uh, did it locally, and they did projects every single morning. There were about 25 uh, students or so involved with, through the variety of days, plus uh, a number of adults, and uh, they served our communities really well. They had a lot of fun, uh, did some uh, did a scavenger hunt one evening, uh, did some out, you know outdoor water games, went to uh, a place in Carrollton and did some team building, just had a fantastic week, and so uh, the biggest thing they did, though, was make a difference in our communities by serving and uh, by giving back, and it was just an incredible thing. You can also be praying, uh, because tomorrow our uh, our kiddos, second through fifth graders, we have about 40 of them that will be uh, loading a charter bus and heading to uh, student camp this week uh, with Student Life, and so it's going to be um, a great week, uh, just as the students had, our kiddos will have. You can actually just be praying for me, because I'm going, uh, as one of the second through fifth grade uh, guys' uh, sponsors, and, and quite honestly, I'm already... Already a little bit nervous about it, um, and so um, we're going to have a great time. Look forward to it, um, church. Just as uh, we mentioned earlier on both campuses, hey, just thank you for crushing our school supplies goal. What an incredible blessing it was to see your generosity. And, and here's the deal: the one thing I've come to know about this body of believers here, it doesn't matter what thing we throw out over the last decade, um, we've hit every goal pretty much we've ever tried to accomplish, and it's only because of the generosity of of people who love the Lord. And so thank you. Um, today, one uh, is uh, open with uh, a quick story. There was actually a, a guy who uh, wrote a book called The Wounded Healer. His name was uh, Henry Newen, And he tells a tale um, kind of about a, a group of, of four brothers that were royalty in India back in the day. It's just this ancient kind of tale or proverb. And uh, the four brothers got together and they were on a quest for really m- more miraculous things and really desired even in many ways to master the sciences. And so the, the brothers said, hey, we're gonna go on a unique journey, all four of us. We're gonna go our separate ways and, and we're gonna begin to learn how to master the art of science. And uh, a handful of years go by and the brothers eventually come back and they begin to, to reveal to one another what they had learned. And brother number one just says, hey, listen, I have discovered that I could take the bone of any particular species and I could take that bone and I could put flesh on it. Brother number two said, well, that's incredible because if, if there's flesh on a, a bone, I've discovered that through the art of sciences, I could put skin and hair on flesh and bone. Brother number three says, well, it's crazy because I've been learning and if I have a bone with, with flesh and with skin and hair, I could actually give it legs and I could give it all that it needs. And brother number four says, well, while I've been away, I've mastered that I can give life to any animal that has Bone and and flesh and skin and hair and legs. And so they decided, well, let's go on a quest and see if, uh, if all four of us doing what we know to do can create something out of nothingness. And so they go into the jungle and they find a, a, a large bone and they begin to, to do exactly what they said. Brother number one actually puts flesh on the bone. Uh, brother number two puts skin and hair on the bone. Brother number three actually gives it its, its legs and its head and it's all of its meaning and purpose. And brother number four breathes life into this object. And all of a sudden you have this ferocious lion and he waves his mane and then he snatches all four brothers and eats them in the jungle. And then he just kind of casually meanders on along the way. And really the purpose in the old proverb is this, is you better be careful what it is that you create. And oftentimes I think even the meaning of our life, we can go on a kind of a chase, right? Of of trying to find purpose and meaning and value. And if we're not careful, we'll create not only a God of ourselves, but a God of something else. And if we're not careful, that God will devour us. And here's the, I want to encourage you today, as we uh, continue in the book of Romans in chapter one, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I want you to see what Paul is writing to uh, his friends in the faith in Rome, though he's never met them in person. He longs to meet them. He said he had been prevented in doing so, uh, but he has a heart for them and he, he's writing in the midst of the powerful city they live in. And he goes, hey, listen, I've got a proclamation to you. And, and he really just says that I um, want you to know that, that God desires to do work in you, and I desire to be a part of that. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. I am ready. I, I, I will do whatever I need to. But though I won't see you in person, he goes, I want you to know I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And we learned that last week, that his proclamation was, is that, hey, the gospel is, is the good news. It is salvation to everyone who believes. And he says it's to the Jew and to the Gentile. And he goes, and you have that righteousness because it's revealed from God by faith for faith, and it's written, "The righteous shall live by faith." And he tells the people of Rome, he says, "Listen, you need to know that, that the God of heaven and earth who he loves you and he desires that you would have the righteousness of God, and anyone who would come to believe him could have the righteousness of God by faith um, and through faith. But what's interesting is, is last week we looked at uh, the idea of revealing. And it's just a word of uh, apocalypto, which literally means to uncover or to unveil or to make known. And he goes, the salvation of God is being made known. This mystery is now made known. But look at what happens in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. He says, there is something else that God is revealing. And in verse 18, he says, it is the wrath of God. So you see the love and the mercy and the goodness of God. And Paul says, and God longs to make that known, but he says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what he says is he goes, Yes, people can come to know Christ, and God can make himself known and reveal himself and his, his attributes and his kindness, and you can see his mercy and his generosity and you can experience his salvation. But at the same time, he says there is a whole nother subset of truth that you need to be aware of, and that is that the wrath of God also is in play. Now you can look at God in many different ways, and you can say, Well, I don't understand why God allows certain things to happen, and in his justice. He allows things and he is perfectly right and just in doing so. And we would say, well, he, can, can he and in his divinity uh, continue to live in a way that is both loving and just? And the answer is yes. And the way he does that is by salvation. He gives love and mercy and kindness, but also because of the legal demands of God that have to be met uh, on behalf of sin. He is also revealing the wrath of God And and who is it to? It's to those that are unrighteous and also suppress the truth. Now, when you think about suppressing the truth, really the idea of that in the Greek is is to hold down. Uh, You ever been swimming uh, in the summertime and you're sitting on a pool pool noodle? Anybody ever done that? And you're holding down the pool noodle? And then you'll take like a little beach ball and you'll push it all the way down or you'll sit on that beach ball or uh, maybe you've even taken like a, a raft or whatever. and You've sat on it, pushed it all the way down. What happens when you let go of the hold? It shoots up out of the water, right? And so it could be the beach ball or the pool noodle or the wrath. The idea of that, of suppressing the truth, is to hold it back. It's to hold it down. And so it's the intentionality here that Paul says, the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and the unrighteous of men who by their unrighteousness hold down, hold back the truth. Look what it says in verse 19. For what, God, uh, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown to them. Uh, He's shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse." And here in the next few moments, as we continue on from verse 19 all the way through 32, I want you to see a handful of things. There's going to be about six things here that you're going to see happen as a result of them really, in many ways, suppressing the truth of God. Because they hold back the truth of God. There are ramifications for that. And what's interesting is Paul says, they're without excuse. And you might ask the question, well, why are these unrighteous people, Without excuse. And who are these unrighteous people at that? Who is Paul writing to? So Paul is writing to the Church of Rome, but in this particular chapter, what he is doing here is he is denouncing the degenerate Gentile. Now the denouncement is a proclamation against the degenerate is the immoral. And the person is the Gentile. It is people who are living in the futility of their thinking. And they are without excuse. And here's why because God has made himself known to them in a very plain way. And you might ask, well, how does God make himself known? In verse 20, he says, it's his invisible attributes. When you see invisible attributes there, if you have your Bible, you could actually just put the character of God or the person of God. Because though we can't see God, we know that he is everywhere. He is all powerful, he is all knowing. He is omnipotent, he is omniscient, um, he is omnipresent. That means he is all, uh, everywhere at all times. And that is the invisible characteristics, the attributes of the person of God. But how do you see those manifested? You see them in his eternal power and his divine nature. You see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where the, the Trinity says, let, come, let us make man in our own image. And you see that he creates mankind out of nothingness, out of dirt. But even more than that, you see the expanse of the heavens. Uh, you see the handiwork of his hands. And what he is suggesting here, Paul is saying, is that, hey, when you are in Rome or when you are in Greece, you can look and see the handiwork of his hands. Let me say it this way. If you are in Utah or you are in... The Rocky Mountains, if you're in Montana, uh, you can look out at the expanse of the sky and you can say, this didn't happen by itself. This is incredible. It is not only thought-provoking, but it is breathtaking. And that doesn't just happen when you're in, in Montana or in, in Idaho or in Utah or any of those places. It also happens when you're in the plains of the Midwest. You can look out across miles of the plains and go, this is incredible. This is a black blessing to see. It's breathtaking. And the question is, is why? And Paul says, it's because it's plain. It's evidence. It's evidence in this way that you have a watch on your hand. Now, real quickly on both campuses, how many of you have a, a watch on your wrist? Go ahead and raise your hand if you've got a watch, okay? Go ahead. Okay, now let's try it one more time because there's some people that weren't participating and I already saw you, okay? Here we go. If you have a watch on, go ahead and raise your hand, okay? So the question that you have to ask is this, how did the watch get on my wrist? And even more than that, how did that watch ever get made? Did like, did, did did somebody just put all the, the pieces of a watch together on a table? And, and over time, um, a special time of evolution, they just eventually kind of made their way together. And then just uniquely, they they did it a number of different times, so they eventually landed on all of our wrists. And then the thousands and thousands and thousands of watches that are made, the question is, how do they come to be made? And you would say, well, there was, a, there was a designer. There was somebody that made the watch. Now, that seems very plausible in our mind, but then here it is. Paul goes, listen, just as you have a, a designer with a watch, you also have an intelligent designer with everything that we see and know, even the things we don't see and know. Because you can't look to the heavens and see the stars and not go, how did they get there? He goes, those are all realities that we are asking of ourselves. And and then here's what he says. God has made it plain. This is him. This is his invisible attributes. This is his eternal power. This is his divine nature. And he goes, and all of it has been in place since the creation of the world. So he goes, that's what you have to wrestle with. And he goes, and because of this truth, he goes, you are without excuse, Gentiles. And so here's what you need to understand. The wrath of God is going to be revealed. Just as his righteousness and his salvation can be revealed, the wrath of God has to be revealed. Because God in his perfection cannot allow sin into his presence and still be perfectly divine. He's got to atone for it to bring justification for it. But the question is, is, but, but why would he allow somebody to not be in his presence? Or if he's all loving and all knowing, why, why wouldn't he just save everyone? And here's what he's saying. He's going, listen, you need to know that the wrath of God is revealed for a handful of reasons. And the very first one is because there's people that dismiss the evidence of God. They dismiss it. And this isn't just happen in the culture we live in. This has happened across the world. That means that there's somebody that has never heard the name of Jesus and they could look around them and they could still have evidence that God exists because of the invisible attributes, because of the eternal power, his divine nature that have been perceived and clearly seen even in the creation. In essence, there is a way that, that God is making himself known. Now listen, real quickly, in case you don't get this, you do not have to have the word of God to see the work of God. Everybody can see the work of God. They may not get the word of God. They may not hear about the name of Jesus, but they can see the handiwork of the heavens. They can see God's presence. And so for somebody to dismiss that evidence is a challenge. Matter in fact, Paul's going to write in the next chapter and he's going to talk about the denouncement of the degenerate, not Gentile, but the Jew. And look what he says to them in verse 14 and 15 of Romans chapter 2. You can flip a page over if you need to. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, I'll put it for you up on the screen. He's writing to the Jews here and he goes, look at this in verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts, accuse or even excuse them. What he's saying is, is this, he goes, the, the Jewish people, as he writes to them, they had the law, they knew right from wrong, and they, they had stop signs. God made it clear to them on Sinai, you are to not do this, you stop here. You, you, you make sure that you don't go passing on a pass zone here. He gave them signs, they give them stop signs. And he goes, and the Gentile didn't have all those, but he goes, there was something that was bearing witness in their life, and he says it was their conscience, and, and that word conscience is the Greek word that really just says, um, it's a moral understanding. Uh, Sunnidesis uh, is the idea and it's to come to knowledge or an awareness of a moral code. For instance, you and I uh, don't have to teach our kids a whole lot in terms of morality because they, they kind of become to understand it. They understand right and wrong pretty quickly. Um, I would say most of our kiddos uh, may not understand all of this, but by the time they're 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, they realize it's not okay to go out and kill a neighbor, right? Yeah, there's like a few kids like, oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I got that. Like, that seems pretty, pretty easy to get. Exactly. I mean, if you're eight years old and you understand this basic truth that we don't kill others, then the reality is, is where did that come from? And what Paul is saying to the, to the Jew, they got it clearly. It was, a, it was a stop sign. It was a framework put in motion for them. But he goes to the Gentile, he goes, they didn't have the law. So what did they have? They had this moral framework in their life. There is the existence of not only God's work in the heavenlies, the expanse of the sky, the mountain ranges, the, the plains, but he goes, it's also written on their hearts. Makes sense? There is this thing that bears witness and it is their conscience. It is the moral code and the fabric in which they live by, which means that even we wrestle with guilt when we know we've done something that is contradictory to the moral code. He goes on, though, and he says this in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So what happens when you dismiss God? He goes... It's important that you know that when you dismiss God, you become futile in your thinking and your hearts become darkened. So when you dismiss the evidence of God, the natural byproduct is number two is your heart will become darkened. Now, when you think about a darkened heart here, what does that mean? It literally means that you have a spiritual or moral blindness. You just cannot see. You have fetters on. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 uh, that the Lord would enlighten the hearts of, to understand it. he would open the eyes of their heart. What he is saying here is that there are people whose hearts, their hearts are darkened to the truth. That's why Paul writes later on in the same book of Ephesians. In chapter 1, he prays that the eyes of their hearts are enlightened. Look what he says in chapter 4 of that same book, verses 17 through 20. He's writing and he goes, now this I say in testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the what? Let's try that one more time, okay? Um, Y'all see that? Oh no, it's not up there. Um, Ephesians chapter four, because I didn't highlight it. It's not on my notes, my bad. So Ephesians chapter four, verse 17 through 20, it says this, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves over to sensuality, to greed and practice of every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you have learned Christ. So Paul says to the, the Ephesians, he goes, you have given, uh, uh, he goes, the, the Gentiles, they have given themselves over the futility of their minds and their hearts are darkened. What happens when you have darkened hearts? Paul says to the church of Colossae in chapter three, he goes, you are no longer put on Christ. And so you put on other things. He says to the church of Galatia, he goes, you put on flesh. And then he tells you what the works of the flesh are. And he says, it ranges from sexual immorality to idolatry, to impurity, um, to um, licentiousness. He just lists all these things. But he goes, I would tell you, it would be better for you to walk in the spirit. And he goes, those are the things that produce fruit. And then he tells you what the fruit of the spirit is. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. For the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. So he goes, when you dismiss God and the evidence of him, your hearts become darkened. And then what happens after that? Look at verse 22 in Romans chapter 1. They claim to be wise. Now, when you claim to be wise, you become a fool, is what he says. And you exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. here's what happens. When you you dismiss the evidence of God and your hearts are darkened, here's the natural progression. Listen, you distort God's truth. You distort the truth of God. Now, the question that you need to ask yourself is, what does it look like to distort the truth of God? Now, listen, I need you to lean in with me on both because I'm about to show you something really cool here. When you distort the truth of God, it means that, that things become relative to you. It means that there's no absolutes. Now, when there's no absolute truth, it means that you make up truth as you go, and you get to define things that you want according to your own life. And we can do that about a myriad of things. We can do it with laws. We can do it with sectors of our life. We can do it about relationships. But here's what's interesting, is that God makes it very clear that as he established his creation, that there was was order, and that there was not only the idea of order, but that the truth of God was not relative. Let's, let's just say this. Jesus says this in John chapter 14. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by, except by me or through me. Now, Jesus says that. And as a Bible believer and also a follower of Jesus, I would say that's absolute truth. That the only way to have a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ, the God-man, the one who willingly gave himself on a cross, his righteousness given to sinners and sinners' inherent sin put on Christ, the God-man. That's how salvation occurs. There's this thing called relativism, which would say, well, you agree, you say what you want to say and I'll say what I want to say. And like, for instance, Oprah would say, there's a million different paths to heaven. And for us that we would say, no, the scriptures are absolute truth. We would say, that's how salvation happens. For many of our friends in the culture that we live in, and indeed the culture that Rome was living in, there were many different paths to God. And it was about the God that you worshiped. And it was about the God you received and it was about what you did for him. But for us, we would say, no, that's not absolute truth. Absolute truth comes from God's word and it comes from who he is, which then defines everything. And the question is, is how did absolute truth get established? Like where did it even come from? Well, we would say it came from God, but it also came in the creation order. So let's just remind ourselves what God created. God created everything that we see and know, even the things we don't see and know. Colossians chapter 1, 15 and following through 20. And we know that Jesus was the creator. The word made flesh is the one who created all things we see and know. You're right? And we know that God took uh, out of nothing and he made something. And there was light on the first day. And then we know that he created the expanse of the, the sky. We know the spirit hovered over the water. We know that he created living things, things that slither along the ground and as, well, as well as mammals. We know that he created the sun, the moon, and the stars. He did all these things. We also know that on the sixth day, he created mankind in his own image. Now, what's interesting about mankind is he says about mankind, you are different than the rest of the creation. Because you're different, you're going to be the vice regent of God. That means you are not only the handiwork of God, not only are you fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139, 13 and 14, but he goes, even more than that, you are the commander-in-chief. You come as you want to come. You multiply, you fill the earth, you rule over it, you subdue it. You name all the animals. You are the vice regent of God. So you have God and you have mankind living in relationship to him. And we are to rule over it, to multiply, to subdue it, all of it. And then what do you have after that? You have the expansion of all you can see and know. And there are the heavenlies. And there are the beautiful things that Adam and Eve must have enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. And then what did they do? They, they ruled over creation. And so here's the order. You had God. You had man. You had everything you could see and know and the things you couldn't see and know. You had the heavenlies. And then you had mammals and reptiles and birds and fish and all those things, right? And then what happens, though, is this. When you give yourself over to a lie and you distort the truth, you know what happens? You confuse the order. And you know what happens when you confuse order? You have chaos, Let me just show you namely how we have confused and distorted it. I'm going to go back and I'm going to show it to you real quickly in verse uh, 22 and 23. I want you to see it one more time. We'll put it for you up on the screen. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of a mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They flipped it. They flipped it. So when I say flipped it, what does that mean? It means that animals that were meant to be ruled over and subdued are now kind of the first priority. And we see that, don't we? We see how animals can oftentimes rule aspects of our lives. And then from there, what is it? It's the creation and it's the cosmos. And it's things like even believers in Christ reading horoscopes and hoping that somehow or another, we're gonna find our purpose in life through the stars. That if everything aligns in the creation and the expanse of the skies, and hey, that's gonna be our destiny. And so if it's not animals and it's not the stars, then guess what? Where do we find our hope? We find it in mankind. We find it in relationships and purpose. And you know where, where God is in all of this? He's at the bottom. We've flipped the order. And that's what happens when you give yourself over to the wrong things. Your, your truth is distorted. Now, listen, let me explain this to you real quickly. The reason you need to understand the importance of order and the reason you need to understand the importance of creation is because this absolute truth rules all of that. For instance, let's just talk about who God is. God is a triune God Father, Son, and what? Holy Spirit. Three in one, majestic, powerful, yet one. In all of that, what you see incredibly here is that there is unity and there is order. In the Godhead, there is unity, they're all equal. There is order because the son submits to the father and the spirit submits to the father and the son. And you see, there is cohesion there. There is unity, yet there's also diversity. And they're they're different. They have different roles. But in all of that, they're also equal. It's just an incredible idea. You got order, unity, diversity, yet they're equal. It's not flipped, it's not rearranged, it's perfectly in union. And guess what? It's not just the Godhead that supports that. Get this, it's marriage. Order, unity, yet diversity, also equality. Beautiful picture, right? Move from there and let's go to the church. Incredible. Order, unity, diversity, yet what? Equal. Male, female, slave, or Jew, anybody, barbaric, can come to know the love of Christ and be equals, be the priesthood of believers. Isn't that an incredible picture? But what happens when it gets flipped? We distort who God is. No longer do we see him as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. No longer do we see marriage as a man and a woman leaving and clinging together as one flesh. Matter of fact, we distort even that. Do we pervert the church as well? And then it confuses the very essence and the fabric of society. Do you see that? That's what happens when you dismiss the truth of God, when you distort the truth of God, when your hearts are darkened. It is a very bad thing. Can that happen to anybody but Rome? Yeah. Verse 24, maybe the saddest part in our Bible and why C.H. Spurgeon really says from here on, he says, you ought to read this part at home and you ought to be startled in the awful vices of the Gentile culture. And here's why, because look at verse 24, and therefore God gave them up. There's a point when you dismiss the evidence of God and your hearts are darkened and your foolishness, you distort the truth of God, where God just says, Hey, I'm going to give you up. You see it in Hosea chapter 4, verse 17. Uh, Hosea uh, was proclaimed from God. He goes, Hey, listen, Ephraim has, has gone after idols. Give her over to it, let them alone. And that's what God will do with the culture. He goes, He gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity to this honoring of their bodies among themselves. And when God gives people over to this, there is pain, there's poverty, there is the expression of sexuality. Marriages are defiled, marriages are devalued. Family unit is, is destroyed. We get to the place where even um, there are conveniences that we go after and therefore we'll remove inconveniences and we lead to places like abortion. It's a very, very sad path when the distorted truth is is given over to. And that's what God says will happen. That's what Paul is telling them. And what happens? Well, they gave themselves over the lust of their hearts to that impurity. And so here's what happens. Defilement rules their life. They, they don't care what they do. They do anything that makes them feel good or what they seem to be right. And listen, the reason that, that this is in some ways the idea of the degenerate is because the only thing that restrains a man is the Holy Spirit. That's why we need a new nature. So you're either degenerate, you're immoral, or you're regenerate you've been regenerated and you have a new life in Christ and it is the spirit of God that restrains us. How is it that we know truth? How is it that we protect marriage? How is it that we see the value of life? How is it that we we continue to live in a culture and we are not of we're in the world but we're not of the world? How is it that Paul would encourage the church of Philippi in chapter 2 to live like stars in the universe? How is that? By the spirit of God. And so you see this group of gentiles are defiled and they're they're ruled by lives that um, are depraved. Verse 25 goes on though and says, and it's because they exchange the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature uh, creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Do you see it? The flip. He goes, this is why it happened. But where did it start? He says a lie. Now, if you have your Bible, you can circle the word lie there, and then you can just write beside it a definite article is what that means. A definite article is just to suggest this was not merely a lie, but it was the lie. The definite article would suggest that this is the lie that happened in Genesis chapter 3. What was the lie in Genesis chapter 3 verse 5? Hey, why are you going to listen to him? You know he's trying to suppress you. He's trying to keep something from you. What was it? Genesis 3 5. You know he, doesn't want to be, he didn't want you to be your own God. You know he's trying to keep you from something good. He's trying to rip you off. That was the lie. And so what happens when we exchange the truth about God for a lie? It's a problem. And he goes, and don't, don't get sucked into that. And what happens here is the same thing that happened in Genesis chapter 3. They were deceived. So the fifth thing is what happens is, is their hearts aren't, aren't only darkened and, and truth distorted, but defilement rules their lives and they're deceived. And when they're deceived... That it means they're willing to exalt something that is less than than that should be exalted. And that's what they're willing to do. That's what Gentiles are willing to do in this case. And so that's the crazy thing is, is that this reason, verse 26, that God gave them up to dishonorable passions. He gave them up to it. This is the the second time that you see that idea. and, And he's going to continue that idea. And what's interesting is he gives them to dishonorable passions and in this particular point, what you see from 26 all the way through 32, you see the denouncement of the degenerate, which is why I named it this. But I want you to see, really starting in verse 26 and 27, 28, 29, 31, and 32, I want you to see the four things that God gives them over to, to the the degenerate, what he denounces them. Here's what you see. In verse 26b, the latter part, you, if you want, you can circle it, write a little thing next to it. It's going to be another D word. He gives them over to degradation. 27, he's going to give them over to debased minds. In 28, um, he's going to give them over to depravity, Sinfulness. And then verse 32, he's going to give them over to death. And I'm going to walk you through it real quick, and then we're going to wrap up our time together. In essence, when you dismiss the evidence of God and your hearts are darkened, you've distorted the truth of God, defilement has ruled your lives, you've been deceived, and God will give you up to it. He'll denounce the degenerate. And here's what he's going to give you over to. He's going to give you over the degradation. Here's degradation, verse 26b. Through 27, for their women exchanged natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relationships with women who were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And what you see here is a picture of what's not natural. In the creation order, we see in Genesis chapter 2, it's a man and a woman married together in covenant relationship. Is a familiar unit that produces holiness and is a reminder of the very covenant promises we see in the triune God. Order, equality, unity, yet diversity. See the picture? Anything less than that is the degradation of our society. And what I would just really help you see here is not the heterosexual relationship. You see a homosexual relationship here. And God said, it is not good design. It is unnatural, it is a degradation of the society. Now real quickly, let me just help you understand real quickly too. While, while that is the case, it is unnatural to see women with women and men with men. It is also unnatural to think that God has designed marriage and that he also will bless a heterosexual relationship that is living in impurity. The reality is, is God's design is two people, a man and a woman living in purity together, Honoring God in all ways, celibacy in their dating, pursuing Christ fully, being filled intentionally through the Spirit of Christ and their new nature, restraining even their passions, their lust, the things that wage war. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, listen, if you're burning with passion, get married. As opposed to what? Living in unholiness. Why? Because it matters. It's a debased way of thinking. It is futility And he goes, it's a degradation, and it's also, look at verse 28. It's a debased mind. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Again, God gave them up. To what? To a debased mind, meaning they're not seen clearly. That's a scary thought, that if I'm not seen clearly, that God could give somebody over to that. And he is still perfectly just in doing so. Now, this is, not, this is not a believer in Christ, somebody filled with the Spirit that we're talking about. This isn't a regenerate. This is the degenerate. Make sense? This is somebody that has no desire for the Lord. Verse 29 goes on and says, They were filled with all the manner of, what? Depravity. What was the depravity that we're speaking of? Um, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Gossiping, they're slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. See it? All things that are contrary to walking in a new relationship with Jesus Christ. He goes, And God will give you over to that depravity. And where does it lead? Verse 32 tells tells us, Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Meaning, they know it leads to death. They know it's not fruitful. And when we're talking about death, we're talking about experiential in the sense of um, even the results of our sinful decisions, which means consequences. But it's not just that, but it's also meaning out of fellowship with God. Just as Adam and Eve were removed from the presence of God, our sin creates a chasm between us and God. And then moreover, it means eternity apart from a God who loves you. Now, here's the point in all of this. The point is not to walk out of here and go, hey, man, aren't we condemning all sinners? That's not the point. What we are helping you understand, and I pray that you hear more than anything, is that the wrath of God is going to be revealed against anybody who doesn't understand the grace and the goodness and the salvation of God in which he wants to reveal to us. But we can't namely say that we love God and then choose both. The reality is, as we see clearly in Matthew chapter 7, those who know God will bear much fruit. And we also know that there, there is a narrow way that leads to life, and few will find it. The reality is, is that salvation is for anyone who would believe in their heart, confess with their mouth that he is Lord. But the reality too is that many of us don't want that because we really are comfortable with being in control of our own lives. And the challenge is, is not whether or not it's a heterosexual or homosexual impurity. The question is, is what is your God? What is it that you were serving yourself? What is, is it sex and, 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 and shekels in your own stomach? Is it your pleasure, your possessions, your position, football, the firm, your family? For Israel, it was gluttony and drunkenness and prostitution. For Rome, it was power and drunkenness and gluttony, position. The reality is it doesn't matter. Anything that's less than the God of heaven and earth will not satisfy and it will claim your time and your attention and your prerogative. And it will lead to an endless, an endless path of pain. And here's what I want you to understand. The reason that our church exists are for Gentiles that have futile thinking. Because I wholly, wholeheartedly believe that as Peter writes... That the reason that God hasn't returned is because He is patient, longing that no one would perish apart from Him. And here's the proclamation I'd make to you, church: is not to walk out of here and go, man. He's condemning me right here in my sin. That's not the point of the message. The point of the message is that if you are readily available to know to the knowledge and the acknowledgment of your sin, I pray that 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 this moral conscience, the law, the word of God, I pray that is is being written on your heart that it would reveal your unrighteousness, so that you would need a righteous Savior on your, on your behalf. But I also pray that you and I would acknowledge that there are many in the world right now that they do not know the righteousness of God. And the goal is not to stand with, on a podium with a, a platform and, and a megaphone and say, hey, you were condemned. But say, hey, can I introduce you to my Savior who willingly gave his Son for me? Can I help you see the cross and and how it paves a way that even though we're denounced and we're defiled and in the degrading of our own passions, can I just show you there's a God in heaven who loves you no no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, he loves you. No matter even what's been done to you, no no matter who's taken advantage of you. So the purpose of this is to, to give the harsh reality that the wrath of God will be revealed and is being revealed. But more than that, the righteousness of God can be revealed to those who by faith and because of faith in the righteousness and the supreme nature of God can have salvation. So I don't know what it is that you're chasing. I would just commend you. I would compel you. I would make an appeal to you that if it's anything less than Jesus Christ, you are destined to experience pain because of the futility of your own thinking. And I've said many times, and I'll say again, I'll close with this. If you want to experience God, you can experience him two ways. One is by pain, or the other is by his precepts. Live according to this, and life won't always be incredibly easy, but it will be fruitful. Live according to your own desires, your own passions, and listen, you will experience pain and hardship. And it doesn't matter how many people warn you until you understand who the Lord is and what he desires in your life. And you're either a degenerate or you've been regenerated. I love you, church. I pray that this message encourages you, maybe in some ways causes you to wrestle, but more than that, wrestle with the Lord and with his text. And may we go have a blessed week. And may we be praying for one another as we make the Lord famous in all areas of our life. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. God, we have distorted your truth and we have reordered things in our culture. And there are many things that, because of the futility of our thinking, are out of order. And Lord, we can see in many different ways uh, that marriage is, is being defiled in our culture. Lord, we can see that the familial unit is being destroyed, the very fabric of our society, about where truth comes from, about where doctrine originates. Lord, it's being destroyed. Um, and Lord, we just pray, God, that you would bring healing and restoration to, um, to individuals and ultimately to our land. But we know that, that, God, that only happens when a remnant, a scarlet thread runs through our lives that brings us back to the cross. Father, may we look to your son high and lifted up and may we know that that's where hope and peace and joy come from. And Lord, may we um, see that you are the one who gives the truth and I pray we would walk in that truth. Father, we love you and we thank you for your holiness, for your goodness, for the salvation in which you give to those who believe in you. And Lord, for those of us in this room, namely a bunch of Gentiles, um, Lord, I pray we would see how we're condemned apart from your son. Lord, would you speak to our hearts, and would you renew our minds, and would you help us to live for you? May all glory and praise and honor be to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.